increase your dietary protein per meal amount. You can understand that high quality protein is essential for the way in which you age. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Now, let's dive into what you're about to listen to. So, Dr. Lyon is a medical doctor who she calls herself a muscle, she does muscle-centric medicine, which is really cool because what we're learning a lot right now is that muscle is the organ of longevity, and she'll talk about that in this interview. But what is so profound about this conversation is we really dialed in to protein, all different types of protein. So whether you're a vegan or you're carnivore or you're trying to figure out how much protein, this is the conversation for you. I think what's really important as you move into listening to this conversation is to keep an open mind because what is surfacing in science right now, what we are seeing clinically, and you'll see it with what Dr. Lyon talked a lot about how we need more muscle as we age and especially in end of life care. We are seeing that there are certain forms of protein that really serve us and some proteins that are a little bit too weak and are not building the proper muscle profile that we need. So I really wanted to bring her on because we talk so much in our fasting group about how we use protein in conjunction or to break a fast so that we are getting the right nutrients so that we are not only benefiting from the autophagy, but that we are also stimulating something called mTOR, which builds muscle. And we dove into mTOR, we dove into autophagy on this episode. So if you want to know how much protein to eat, if you want to know what type of protein, uh, if you want to know how to combine protein with fasting, if you want to know if you should eat conventional meat, is it worth it to spend more money on grass-fed or can you just do conventional this is the episode for you. I This is like no other podcast interview I've ever done for you guys. We Everything you need to know about protein, everything you need to know about building muscle, Dr. Lyon will answer for you. So as always, I hope you enjoy. I hope this information enhances and improves your health. And if you love it, please send it out into the world. Leave us a review. I do this so that you guys can be the healthiest version of you possible. Enjoy. Hey, Recenters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the Academy. And I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My Academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. 
So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. Okay, so I, the, here's the, the million-dollar question that I want to start with. Why do we need protein? I feel like we're hearing so much right now about why protein is so important. Like it, like it's making a comeback for some reason. It never went away. I mean, let's be frank. Protein really never went away, but it's this black sheep of the macronutrient family. Yes. Right? Well said. Well said. So right. why is it a black sheep and why do we need yeah. it? Well, it's really interesting. Let's first start about why it's the black sheep. Yeah. We can all agree that excess carbohydrates are bad. Nobody's going to argue that excess carbohydrates, excess sugar is bad, right? Right. Yep. Going to totally screw up your metabolism. Fat. Okay. So there's been a lot of controversy around fat, but we can all agree that some fat is good for you. Fat is a great source of calories. There's all kinds of things that we can agree on its benefit. Then we come to protein. Mm-hmm. And protein is has a face which makes mm-hmm. it very emotional for people. Literally, this is the only macronutrient that people become emotional about. So true. And now what you have here is you have science and you have health. And then on the other side of this, you have emotion. And when mm-hmm. you mix science and emotion together, conversations become very confusing. Mm. Conversations become very difficult to be applicable, right? It becomes very difficult because then there are these biases and we all have biases, but these become overarching in the conversation of protein. And you ask me, well, so there's that aspect of it being the black sheep of it, having a face of it being very emotional. Then you have very big groups that feel very strongly about not eating animal-based sources of protein which then leads to conversations that will support that, that these groups will try to make. For example, that animal animals are bad for the environment, which couldn't be further from the truth as it relates to the U.S. That's not where the majority of greenhouse gas comes from, right? Yes, yes. Scent or so is from other things like industry and electricity and travel, all the other things. So there's that aspect. And then you said, well, why do we need protein? And I would say we need protein for everything, for turnover, for kidney, liver, brain, all the turnover in our body, we need protein. And we need it from a very obvious component as it relates to skeletal muscle. Mm. When you think about muscle as the organ of longevity, which really determines the trajectory of how we age, muscle, protein, and muscle, you can't build it without it. Okay. I mean, that's just a few, right? You need it right. for hormones and neurotransmitters. You need these amino acids for nearly everything in the body. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's start with this idea. Yeah. Um, just so we can reframe protein. Yeah. I, I don't want to lose the first thing you said, which is eating meat is not bad is what I heard is not bad for the environment. Right. Explain that. You know, my husband's a huge environmentalist and he always puts this point out there that the vegans think they're doing something right for the environment, but that's not the case. So help bring us up to speed as yeah. to why meat's not bad for the environment. Well, first, first of all, I'd like to say that I think everybody's trying to do their best. I yeah, think well said. whether you're vegan or whether you're carnivore, we are all in this together. And instead of dividing us, which is, I think, really, really happened over the last really five years. I I don't know, Mindy, I'm curious as to what your thoughts, but I really think as of late, we are becoming more divided and and, and we are not the enemy of each other. And and that is a huge mistake. Yep. When you think about agriculture, this is, and when you think about greenhouse gas, let's take greenhouse gas. It's a very complex system. It is not Mm. the cow's fart and then you know, they're emitting greenhouse gas and it's a problem. It is so much more complex than that. 
and it is an entire life cycle. And when you look at the EPA data, there's some data, I was just looking at the charts from 2017, and it broke down what the contribution of greenhouse gas is as it relates to different, quote, products. And when you look at agriculture, agriculture as a whole, and I'm defining that as uh, fruits and vegetables, I'm defining that as cattle, dairy, chicken, everything makes up 9%. The most that it's ever going to contribute to greenhouse gases is 9% maximum. When you break that down, three and a half percent of that would be coming from meat. So let's say you were to do a meatless Monday, then you still have to get your protein from some sources. And those sources would be, you know, vegetables, grains, however else you can make that up. So the biggest impact that you would ever have from doing a meatless money, uh, meatless, meatless money, that would be interesting. (laughs) Monday would be maybe 0.1%, nothing. Not much. It it would, right. But, but the reason that they target meat and these groups target meat is because there's, they believe morally that we shouldn't be eating animal products. So whatever needs to happen to push a narrative and these narratives actually take us further away from health rather than bringing us together and helping us understand what is in actuality happening. It is much more of a problem if you live in Minnesota and you're eating avocados. Mm. What? Okay, explain. It's transportation. You are now transporting food mm. from Mexico or you're transporting food from a valley in California to Minnesota or Alaska. Yeah. For the environment, it's harder on the environment because because transportation yeah. contributes. So if agricultural agriculture as a whole contributes nine percent, electricity, transportation, and industry make up the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This and you sound it's just the facts. Yeah, and really, our when you think about it, our meat consumption has already gone down. We're mm. we're already down. The red meat consumption, I think, is down between fifteen and seventeen percent over the last how, decade. How come? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's partially the narrative. Yeah, so could be. Continue to decrease our meat consumption. Obesity rates have increased. Um, you know, as it relates to greenhouse gas in the environment, it's really more of a population issue. Yep. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So and, so and also, said. what about this? What about all the food we're wasting? Yep. That has yep. to go somewhere. Yep. But everything. But we blame meat for everything. And it's actually just a scapegoat of a much bigger issue and a much bigger problem, which is having kind of a dysregulation and communication in addition to agenda, for example, something like the game changers, agenda and media pushing things forward that are actually not evidence-based, not scientific. And, you know, someone would ask me, well, why do you care so much about this? I'm going to tell you why. I was lucky enough to train under one of the world leading experts in protein metabolism, who 20 years later is still my mentor. This is a relationship of 20 years. And his name is Dr. Donald Lehman. And I studied protein metabolism. I studied human nutrition in my undergrad. Then, you know, I went to do a fellowship. I went to medical school, residency, and then a fellowship. And my fellowship was in nutritional sciences and geriatrics. So I did clinical work in geriatrics, and then I did clinical research in obesity. I was absolutely not prepared to be a geriatrician. I don't know if you, have you ever worked with the end of life? No, no. I mean, well, I, I have been with patients. I've been in four situations where I was with patients as they passed. That's the closest. I've How been. many patients was that? You said four. 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 Yeah. Can you imagine doing that and seeing those kind of patients, 30 patients a day. Oh, yeah. No. Or so no. Could, you, could you imagine what that would be yeah. like? That would be soul Devastating. Yeah. Devastating. So you're going to work and you know for your entire day, you're going to get up and do research at the mor- in the morning. So you can get up at 4 a.m. And you're going to go do biopsies, muscle biopsies. Then you're going to go and round on the patients that are all end of life, injured, you know, typically demented or something you know, you're talking 30, you might see 30 patients in a day for two years. Wow. So this brings me back to why is this concept so important to me? And this is actually where the concept of muscle centric medicine was born. It was that, you know, after the first couple months of being at the bedside of these patients that perhaps will never walk again, 
Mm. And seeing and seeing how crippled and working in nursing homes, I had I rounded on nursing homes every weekend. I mean, it was wow. So devastating to see the way in which end of life happens. And you have to understand that it's directly related to their capacity to hold on muscle. Right. Right. The muscle is actually the organ of longevity. I love this that. is true. It, it is a secretory organ. And where protein plays a role in that is that, you know, it's so fascinating. Right now, we have the internet and we have groups and we have, there's a lots of conversations. So there's a lot of debate that happens in the middle, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, even your 60s, you know, where everyone's debating. But on the extreme end, there is no debate what mm. is going to help support a body. Mm. And, you know, in the middle, when we're all healthy and young and we can and vital, we can all fight about, ah, you should be vegan. No, you should be carnivore. And there's this incredible conversation, but I am telling you as that trajectory happens, no one is arguing when you are sitting at the bedside of a person who is never going to walk again, cannot remember their daughter's name. You don't have that conversation anymore. Interesting. You know, and I feel like I am talking so much and you're being so generous with. No, no, I I think it's no, the way, the way I love to get information to yeah. people so that they can change the paradigm in which they're sitting in is I think you have to have come above it and have a bigger vision for it before you get into the detail of it. So yeah. I am actually, Incredible. I love being able to share all this. Yeah. So. Like I'm sucked into the story because, right. because I think that makes incredible sense. Right. And um, like I told you before we got on and that in our resetter collaborative on Facebook, where we all fast together, we have to break up fights between the vegans and the carnivores all the time. And I agree with you that there is a place in which we can come together. I love how you started this out, that we're not enemies of each other. Uh, and, and there's a way to rise above the rhetoric and the little social media sound yeah. bites and think a little deeper for ourselves. So help us understand why protein builds muscle. Like, and yes, can, can I get protein in broccoli? I mean, protein, yes. broccoli Great. has protein. So let me, before I tell you that, let me highlight this, say, end of life individual or this person who is much older in a nursing home. And we have all seen them, right? We've all mm -hmm. seen our parents become frail. We have all seen the, you know, the walker, the whole thing. Muscle has to be fed later mm -hmm. on in life. Muscle must be fed. It is a non-negotiable, a plant-based diet, unfortunately, while you can navigate that when you are younger, absolutely cannot sustain an individual when we think about what is medically acceptable for their mm. well-being. Wow. That's and this powerful. is really powerful to understand because yeah. the conversation isn't just about, is protein good for me? Should you be on a vegan diet? Should you be on a carnivore diet? That is um, a little linear right? Mm. When we are thinking about this as groups in your group, we have to think, where am I at in my age? What kind of activity am I doing? How metabolically flexible am I? What is my carbohydrate tolerance? What, what is actually the information that I am getting and where am I right now? If that makes sense. Yeah. We'll talk about protein and we'll talk about why protein is so important for muscle. And this is absolutely essential to understand and really not up for debate. These are hard, fast biological numbers that I'm going to share with you. Are you yeah. ready? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. In order for muscle to be quote stimulated, this concept of muscle protein synthesis, it requires branch chain amino acids. It requires specifically an amino acid called leucine. And leucine is one of the essential amino acids meaning we must get it from our diet. And actually I will come back at the end. If you remind me, there is some new rodent data that would say that we may be able to make essential amino acids. Brand cool. new. I, I love it. Still new, still not humans, but really interesting. So we need these amino acids, these essential amino acids, particularly leucine. So there's leucine, isoleucine, and valine, these branch chain amino acids, which are very high in animal products, specifically leucine at a certain threshold to then stimulate skeletal muscle. Okay. What does that look like? Okay. Well, two and a half grams is roughly 
30 grams of high quality protein, whether it's beef, chicken, um, egg, fish has a little lower quality protein. They're gravity bearing animals. So you need this 30 grams to actually trigger the stimulus. Okay. Okay. 30 grams at one time? At one time. Great point. You cannot sip on a protein shake throughout the day. You Mm. must reach that amino acid threshold in the blood to trigger this response. Okay. Non-negotiable. As we age, this response becomes more challenging. Skeletal muscle is a nutrient sensing organ and its capacity to sense nutrients, specifically protein decrease as we age. Wow. Because of why is that? I mean, can I anabolic resistance and it's something cellularly that happens and it happens to everybody. The issue then becomes how do you overcome anabolic resistance? So anabolic resistance means that as you age, your body becomes less sensitive to being able to be stimulated by the protein, the proteins that you're ingesting. So for example, let me give you a perfect example. My daughter, who's two years old, I could give her five grams of protein and that five grams of protein, you know, could give her just maybe one ounce of beef and then some vegetables. She will get a max anabolic response to her muscle. Okay. Because she's young and she's driven. She's so by yeah. Very cute. Um, <laughs> quite a handful uh, typically ends up on the floor. So thank goodness for the fact that she can eat just a small amount of protein and get a max stimulation. Okay. Whereas you or I, if we eat 30 grams of protein, and this is animal-based protein because of that leucine content, for example, if you wanted to get that in quinoa, you would need about four to six cups of quinoa to reach that threshold. Wow. It becomes metabolically unfavorable as it relates to caloric consumption and carbohydrates. Got it. Same thing with like like broccoli. I mean, broccoli broccoli has protein. Right. So broccoli, the amount of broccoli you would have to eat to reach that threshold of two and a half grams of a minimum at one time to trigger skeletal muscle would be, I can't even, I mean, that would be so difficult. Your stomach would hurt. I mean, you're talking about a ton of broccoli. Right. Now you bring up an interesting point. And this is when we think about protein and we think about the amino acids, does broccoli have protein amino acids? Absolutely. Does say beef have protein amino acids? Absolutely. These amino acids exist in different amounts. They're all there, but they exist in different amounts. And it's so critical to understand that it's the amount that makes the metabolism. Okay. The amount of protein is at one sitting. At one sitting. It must be at one sitting because okay. think about it. If you are sub threshold, if you are sub threshold of that loose, so it's, it's a, so basically it's like a, a car. You can't, you've got to be able to turn the car on, turn it fully all on. the other amino acids to then lay down skeletal muscle. Love it. Yeah. Good analogy. If you, if you were to drink a protein shake over a period of time, you would never reach that level in the blood needed to trigger skeletal muscle. When okay. you're young, you can do it when you're young. And, and, you know, when I say young, really, if you're growing, because when you are young, you are driven by hormones, growth hormones, things of this nature. As yes. you age and you've stopped growing higher, you grow wider. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it's, so it's really interesting because there's this big argument, are animal proteins and plant proteins equal? Well, they're equal as it relates to, do they all have amino acids? Yes. But do mm-hmm. they have the correct amino acids in the correct amounts? Well, that would take some navigating typically. And this makes logical sense when you think about, um, skeletal muscle, right? Skeletal muscle needs it like need like feeds, like, for example, beef is made of skeletal, right? So the skeletal muscle of beef feeds skeletal muscle of human. Yep. The amino acid profiles are nearly the same. And in essence, it makes the correct amount of proteins needed for that. Plants make the correct amount of proteins for plants. Right. And we are not plants. No, some, <laughs> no, we are not. No. Right. So I was trying okay. to make a really bad mom joke, but that didn't happen. <laughs> it's all good. Um, okay. So what I'm hearing, and I just want to like, 
bring it down to as simple of a concept as possible is that if I'm a vegetarian or a vegan and I'm in my 20s, that might not be as detrimental to my health as if I'm 50 or 60. Absolutely correct. Absolutely okay. correct. And the other way to stimulate skeletal muscle is through exercise. Right. You can make up for a lower protein amount if you're a vegan or vegetarian, then by training, you can protect that skeletal muscle. But you're absolutely okay. right. When you're, I was vegetarian. In I was house. too. I was too in my twenties. Yeah. So I was vegetarian. I was actually macrobiotic at a point. Wow. My I was, yeah, I was really all in. Impressive. <laughs> I was quite impressed. But you can navigate that. And there, listen, and we can talk about dietary strategies. I don't want to, you know, really put off vegans or vegetarians because the reality is, can you get everything you need? Yes, you can. You have to supplement wisely, whether it's with branch chain amino acids, you know, B12, you know, iron. There's all kinds of things that you could supplement with right. to make that lifestyle work. It just takes a lot of thought. Right, right. And that's what that was going to be my next question. Um, you know, part of why I decided to go vegetarian, I was vegetarian in my 20s, pretty much my whole 20s, was because of John Robbins' book, Diet for a New America. And I read that right. and I was like, okay, I'm going to do my environmental thing. It's better for me to not eat meat. I, for 10 years, I was 30 pounds heavier than I am now. I was got chronic fatigue syndrome. I like really, but I didn't do good vegetarian. Right. So, um, you know, how do we rectify the humanity part of this? In terms of the emotional part of eating yeah. animals. It's I don't really want to eat meat. I don't, what if I don't want, you know, like, right. it's just hard. It's an animal and there's compassion. And, you know, if I'm Buddhist, I have like a Buddhist philosophy. Like it's really hard to think about hurting an animal. It is, it is. And I think that at the only thing that I can say is at some point the conversation then becomes, are you willing to give up your health for theirs? Yeah. yeah. You mentioned later on in life in your fifties and sixties, if you are plant-based in your fifties and sixties, the majority of people, it will be detrimental for mm. the majority of people. I will tell you, I, I was telling you before we got on is I still have a, I still see patients in clinic. I have a concierge medical practice and the vegan and vegetarians for the most part, and I don't have many in my practice, but over my 15 years of practice, I have seen some, they tend to be the ones with the lowest bone density, the ones with the most nutrient deficiencies, a lot of cavity issues, a lot of hair issues. Um, but that being said, you can still supplement wisely for those mm -hmm. individuals. Yep. And I'm going to mention one more thing. I would say about 2% of the population really thrive on a vegan and vegetarian diet. Yeah. I've and seen some people, I've, my yoga instructor is one of them. So yeah. this is where the new data comes out. And I think I really enjoy what you said, Mindy, before was that you have to come from a big perspective and I can certainly, as a protein expert, I certainly cannot argue that I have seen vegan and vegetarian individuals thrive. Yeah. And it's really important to be open-minded. What I think we're going to see is those that eat a more vegan vegetarian diet have a different kind of microbiome and this microbiome mm. becomes similar to a ruminant and they actually can make their own amino acids. Oh, that's and this is mind blowing. And this changes absolutely everything about what we know and what we think is that the majority of individuals know, but is there some emerging data in rodents? There was a recent paper in nature that had come out. Um, Dr. Don Lehman was one of those individuals on that study where we are seeing that humans or that rodents, you know, as a proof of concept can make essential. It's possible that they may be able to make essential. Crazy. Crazy. Okay. So now let me ask you this question. Yeah. This is something that I've analyzed because I really do like my heart is with the vegetarians. Like I get that part. Right. Um, I see people like my yoga instructor who just is thriving with it, with a vegetarian diet. And one of the th things that I've noticed is many of the people that thrive with a vegetarian diet are blood type a, hmm. and if you go back and you look at the blood old theory of the blood That's type diet, do you think blood type would have anything to do it with it? And is how's our blood type and our microbiome connected? I have not studied I that. that. I think it's really, I was actually looking at, it's so wild that you say that I was literally looking at the data yesterday for blood typing. Mm. 
And the data actually doesn't support evidence of its efficacy. Interesting. There's yeah, no I, data that, which is really interesting because yeah. it makes consciously. I was reading up about there. There's an allergy to meat from the Lone Star Tick. Have you heard of that? No. Yeah. There, I have a patient with it that actually has an allergy to red meat and he was bitten by a Lone Star Tick. Oh, and I think as any good clinician, we do literature search and we're just like, well, how is that possible? And it's real. And uh, anyway, I was thinking, are those individuals with Lyme, do they have a particular mm -hmm. blood type? Because is there something that is provoked that some people get sick and some people don't? That's a really long story <laughs> for saying that I was just looking at the literature for blood typing. And again, there's no evidence to suggest that it actually works. Yeah. Um, so perhaps the individuals that do better on the vegan vegetarian diet, like your yoga instructor, do so because their microbiome is more suited to that. Yeah. Which, which is a key idea behind why we cannot point fingers right. at each other because we all have different microbiomes. So if, you know, I look at my yoga instructor and I'm like, good on you. Like, it, it's great that it works for you. I wish it had worked for me. Uh, it didn't work for me. Eating more meat works better for me. And the microbiome is a great explanation. I love yeah. that. And we can't argue that these numbers, I mean, we know that two and a half grams of leucine stimulates skeletal muscle. Yeah, we crazy. know these are, we know that there are certain high quality proteins that are required in a certain amount to stimulate skeletal muscle. Yeah. There is no argument about that. And it's very interesting when you see the groups, the carnivores, and it doesn't mean that a fully carnivore diet is the right diet. There's something to be said for phytonutrients. There's something to be said for fiber. There's a lot of support for fiber. I think it goes back to what you're ultimately saying, Mindy, is that we do have bio-individual natures. Yep. And there are things in science that we know to be true and can be proven over and over and over again. Yeah. We know that protein is very important for skeletal muscle. We know that a certain amount stimulates it. So for example, if you are going to be fasting, you are going to want to target just for practical application, a minimum of 30 grams. That's going to be way too low. If you are targeting, if you are fasting for long periods of time, you're going to want to hit anywhere from 40 to 55 grams of protein per meal. If you're having two meals a day, it's what I call protein pulsing. I have a plan that I do pro protein pulsing where that first meal and that last meal are very high in protein Yeah, because okay. you're stimulating skeletal muscle at that in that way. Yeah. And, and I want to get, uh, it makes sense. And I, I actually, now I feel like I've got all these questions on yeah. different science that I saw. Um, so I want to get into the, the protein pulsing and cycling in it for a moment. Here's a question before we leave the microbiome issue. So the way that I had always been taught about the microbiome is that plants feed our, our good bacteria. Yes. And then when I dove into understanding why the carnivore diet was working so well for people with autoimmune issues, I started to see that bacteroides, which is prev it, it, it can be easily fed by collagen in meat actually does better. You can feed that set of bacteria better with, uh, with a, a collagen rich steak than you can with a salad. Is that correct? Like, are we feeding certain bacteria better with meat than we do with plants? I think that that is definitely a possibility. I think that's a really good insight and likely it would make sense that you would feed different bacteria differently, depending on the substrate that you're using. Absolutely. Yeah. With autoimmune, I've thought about this quite a bit foods. It's interesting. So once your auto, once your immune system is upregulated, it seems to be very reactive regardless mm. of what kind of plant you're eating. It just seems to be very reactive. You're absolutely right. Individuals that go carnivore, I have seen clinically inflammatory markers go down. They rheumatoid factors go down. Is it yeah. because they are now calorie controlled? Maybe, but I think it's more likely that whatever is upregulating their immune system, they're no longer exposed to. Yeah. I, have you also seen that the carnivore diet will upregulate T regulatory cells and calm that immune system down? Mm. I saw a study on that as well. I that haven't was seen it, but I, I would love to. I would love yeah. to. I'll find it and send it to you because that was, that was interesting as well. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. 
Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org, and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community, on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. The other thing, again, before we leave the microbiome, yeah. because the microbiome. Maybe that, listen, maybe there'll be a part two of this interview. Yeah, there might be. I feel like I didn't know I had so many questions for you. I, this is so exciting. Um, is the, So I learned this from actually Dr. Zach Bush in my conversations with him, that we look at the Firmicutes versus Bacteroides ratio. And when Firmicutes are really high and Bacteroides are low, you are going to store calories more. So you can take two individuals yes. and feed them the same amount of food, same amount of calories. If I have more firmicutes than you, I'm going to store it as fat more. So we've got to bring bacteroides up and eating meat is one of those ways we can bring bacteroides up when we eat plants, when we eat standard American diet, when we're on antibiotics, routine antibiotics, we bring firmicutes up. Have you heard that? I have, I have. What are I'd, your thoughts also on like that? To, I'd like to also point out that there are other things that happen when you eat proteins. So it increases the thermo effect of feeding. Mm. It increases the, you know, it takes more energy to dispose of the nitrogen in protein. Mm. There are so other so you're literally like raising your metabolism. Yes. yes that's yeah. exactly what you're doing. Okay. That's there crazy. are other factors we, we would just have to really think about. I mean, the data for protein, you're talking 30 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. There's a ton of good data that says prioritizing protein is fantastic. Yeah. You know, I'm biased, so I'm very careful about the words that I use. I'm very aware of my own biases that I've, you know, studied this for two yeah. decades. And certainly yeah. this is what I believe to be the key to health. And yeah. it's totally misunderstood. Yeah. I, I, I love this. So, and I agree. I think I also want to create a world where all beliefs can, can unify. So, okay, let's go into the amount. And then I want to go into the type. So yeah. some of the studies that I have seen is not only the amount, but how often you're eating. So in the fasting world, we focus a lot on stimulating autophagy. But then on the other end of that is mTOR. Right. So we, what the research I've seen is with protein cycling, 20 to 30 grams every couple of hours is the best way to stimulate mTOR. So if you have a day of autophagy and you follow that with some protein cycling and you're alternating in and out of that, that to me seems like the most logical way to build strong, lean muscle. Okay. What do you, you think ready? of that? Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> Um, the concept of stimulating mTOR is very important regarding the data. We don't actually know how long. So let me, let me back up for your listeners. mTOR is mechanistic target of rapamycin and mTOR. This complex exists in every single cell in the body, right? So it exists in the skeletal muscle and in the skeletal muscle, mTOR is exquisitely sensitive to amino acids the liver and pancreas have mTOR in them, and they are more sensitive to carbohydrates and insulin. Mm. The brain has mTOR. So it is just, 
a growth, growth, not initiator, but it is a growth propagator, right? So it is okay. not an initiation because the reason I say this is individuals will say, well, protein stimulates mTOR, therefore it stimulates cancer. The data does not support that. That is absolutely not true. mTOR is actually stimulated in the body by different substrates, not just protein. Okay. This is another example of a narrative gone wrong. Mm, Really important for people to understand. mTOR is in all cells. mTOR is essential. You want to trigger mTOR in skeletal muscle. The way in which you do that is through amino acids. Okay. 20 grams of amino acids is sub threshold that will not mm. stimulate mTOR depending on your age. Okay. You must increase that. The older you get in order to stimulate mTOR, you must hit a minimum of 30 grams. At one sitting. At one sitting. And how many, how many times throughout the day? Great question. We know that it takes and this is more of extrapolated data between four and five hours for the system to reset. So for example, if you were to do small post pulsed meals of mTOR, I would not recommend that. Okay. You do not want to overstimulate mTOR, not because of mTOR in skeletal muscle, but because of mTOR in liver, pancreas, in other parts of the body, you don't want to continuously stimulate it. Okay. The growth propagator. Right. When you think about how many times you want to stimulate mTOR throughout the day, one must think about what is their goal. Is their goal, number one, weight loss? Is their goal body composition? And essentially by body composition, I mean increasing skeletal muscle. And to your point, is it autophagy? Right. So if, and I would argue that it would be very difficult to be in a state of autophagy. And, you know, I'm just guessing here. And in a state of building muscle, those things would, those things would, they don't make sense to go together. No, they don't. If you now, again, the other way to stimulate mTOR is high carbohydrates, smaller meals throughout the day, not a good plan, Mm -mm. right? You don't want to overstimulate this complex. That being said, we believe that it becomes stimulated and it takes four to five hours to reset. So the the soonest that you would want to eat another meal would be between four and five hours. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's now let's look at if we've compressed our eating window. So like one of my favorite studies right now that I've been geeking out on is if we take a high fat, high sugar diet Mm -hmm. and we compress it in a 10 hour eating window, that there appears to be this metabolic um, immunity. Like you don't tend to have the damage that a high fat, high sugar diet will create if you compress it into 10 hours. Mm -hmm. So let's just apply that to all food. So I'm going 14 hours of fasting. I'm doing 10 hours. I eat, I break my fast with protein. I do 30 grams. I hit that threshold. Great. Now what I'm hearing you say is just don't eat for another four to five Hours And you can meet that. So within that compressed window, you could easily feed. If you needed to, you could feed three times. Yeah. Because you're in 10 hours. Yeah. 10 hours you could, it doesn't, I mean, this is, you know, you're going 14 hours without eating. Right. So therefore you're not stimulating, you know, more than 50% of the day, you're not stimulating mTOR. Right. Right. You could easily do, I definitely don't recommend one meal of the day one meal uh, a day. And that of course depends on your age. If you're young, I don't care. You can do whatever you want. Right. Right. (laughs) Congratulations. That's That's hormone through the roof. Good for you. (laughs) Nobody cares. Okay. But for the rest of us who are not in our twenties, then we have to be very strategic at how we're managing our foods. Can you do one meal a day? Yes. Do you want to do one meal a day every day? If you do that and you're up against anabolic resistance, then over the course of your life, you will lose skeletal muscle. Mm. When you are young, it doesn't matter. You can build it back. As you go through perimenopause, yep. as you go through andropause, I want to include the men here. Yeah, well said. Muscle becomes very difficult to maintain. And yes. this is the moment you've got to be very strategic. I think fasting is a great way to control calories. 
I think it's a great way to entrain your circadian rhythm. We know that food does stimulate uh, the circadian rhythm. I haven't seen the particular study that you are talking about, but I have looked at multiple studies as it relates to compressing feeding windows. And one of the things that it allows for is it certainly allows for calorie control. Right. And that, and that, you know, is essential. Also clinically, it allows for bowel rest. I have mm, individuals yeah. that have chronic GI issues go through periods of fasting and a lot of, I mean, of course you have to take care of the underlying pathology, but it certainly does alleviate the bowel. You know, it gives your stomach, gives your digestive tract a rest. Yeah. Yeah. And what I really advocate for is fasting variation with all these things, because anything done the same way over and over again is never going to be good. How, how many, so I'm a 52 year old woman. How much protein do I need in a day? I, I really resonate as I move through menopause. I, I could build muscle like nobody's business in mm-hmm. my, you know, thirties and twenties. And once I hit forties, oh my gosh, it started to break down. So how much protein would I need? Well, what is your target weight? Uh, gosh, you know, I haven't weighed myself in years, but I'm somewhere between 125, 130 is about where I, I typically. And you sits. like, and do you like to be that way? Well, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. For you, I would say at the high end, you could easily hit 130 grams and you, do you need that much? You don't need that much per day. I would say that if you are looking to lose body fat, I prioritize protein protein mm. forward is really the way to go okay. again, because of your age, I'm assuming you're not menstruating. Maybe you are, but I'm assuming that yeah, I'm in that gray area. Okay. I never know. It depends what day it is, okay. what month it is, but it's been several months now. Okay. So you're kind of in that perimenopausal timeframe. Yep. This is the time where sarcopenia really yes. goes up. This yes. is the time where skeletal muscle and anabolic resistance really happens. Testosterone levels change. Estrogen actually does play a a part in skeletal muscle. This changes thyroid. All of these things change, which actually make it harder to maintain and build muscle. So for you, because of your specific needs, I would say, put you at the higher end. Mm -hmm. I would say if you wanted to, 130 grams of protein would be absolutely suitable. People would say, wow, that's really high. Now, the next question I would ask you is how many times are you eating? Uh, I eat any pretty much like twice a day. I, you know, I'll break my fast at noon, two o'clock. And then once I open up my eating window, I'll eat twice a day. And when I eat, I eat like, I'm not, I'm not trying to count calories or anything. Well, I think that we should try this. I think we should really increase your protein. And I would say if you're doing two meals a day, maybe we shoot for 55, 60 grams per meal. I doubt you'll be able to eat that much. I would be happy if you hit 55 grams because yeah, now yeah. you've maxed out muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. This would be I, a strategy to max out that system. We, I eat a lot of, pro, like I, protein's kind of my go to my, in fact, my kids, they joke, they're like, are we having steak again tonight? Nice. We like, we have big steaks. I mean, we're really, and I want to talk about organ meats and things like that as well. So I'm a huge protein fan and this is, I'm a recovering vegetarian. So I just want to point that out. Well, me too. Uh, me too. Yeah. So, um, okay. So if I eat, in relation to my glucose levels. So let's yeah. talk about that because right. when I first started using a CGM, um, when I ate protein, my blood sugar would spike right. recently this year in January, I wore one for the whole month. Every time I had a big steak, I don't know how many grams it was, but I'm going to say 40 grams. My pro- my glucose went down. Yeah. Why? Okay. This is a great question. Mindy. I've been dying to have somebody (laughs) answer it for me. So this is awesome. If protein actually does cause an insulin spike, but it is a phase one insulin release, meaning what is already in the pancreas is released. It is a phase. There is typically with carbohydrates, there's a two phase response, the release of insulin, and then the generation of more insulin to bring down blood sugar. Okay. Okay. When you eat protein, protein does cause an initial insulin release. And the thought is, is this helps stimulate muscle, right? So mTOR insulin is one of the things that that stimulates muscle. Um, So you will see a spike in insulin. Okay. 
as it relates to glucose for every hundred grams of protein that you eat, 60 grams through gluconeogenesis of carbohydrates is created. Okay. For every hundred grams, you'll get roughly 60 grams of carbohydrates of protein. Wow. Okay. Now, if you are a protein forward eater for all my carnivores out there, you become very good at generating your own glucose. What you typically, and you'll do this through the liver. And what you will typically see clinically is your blood sugar will actually remain a little bit higher over a 24 hour period of time because your body is generating its own glucose rather than you eating carbohydrates and having an ebb and flow. Okay. Is that good? Yes, it's good because you are doing what the body is designed to do. Okay. It is maintaining blood glucose. And we're not talking about high levels of blood glucose, but insulin levels will be low. So the home IR will be low. Okay. Insulin resistance will be low. If I'm looking at blood, you know, I'll see, you know, if you're thinking about how much, you know, if you look at the markers of insulin, typically it's, you know, you look at five, you know, five, you wouldn't want it being over five. Typically you see two and a half because you're not requiring extra insulin. You're not We're not requiring robust insulin because your body is actually, you know, number one, while protein causes a phase one insulin release, it doesn't cause a phase two. And if you ate hundred grams of carbohydrates versus hundred grams of protein, the insulin response would be totally different. Yeah. Yeah. And the blood sugar response would be totally different. Yeah. Now the fact that you eat a steak and you get a little hypoglycemic postprandial hypoglycemia. I think that's interesting. Do I know why? I'm not totally sure unless your nutrition at that meal is unbalanced where your Mm. blood glucose is dipping or you're spiking your glucose too high and then you're getting a secondary drop. Yeah. But I don't, I don't feel hypoglycemic and the, actually the NutriSense people said, oh, that can be just a fit. This is, was their responses is efficiency of Mm -hmm. being able to break down those macronutrients. So I didn't think of it as a bad thing. I just more thought of it as, oh, that's interesting. I've never yeah. seen that for myself before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah I'll do it, it again. Is- now I'll let you know. So, yeah. Okay. The idea behind if I eat meat, my cholesterol is going up. Totally not real. Okay. And explain I did a post that. On that on my Your body, dietary cholesterol doesn't impact for the most part, blood level cholesterol. That has been disproven for years and years. Mm-hmm. In fact, they took it out of the guidelines. Mm. They took it out of the dietary guidelines. It doesn't even exist in there anymore, but it's an old narrative. The body will make its own cholesterol. Okay. Not, you know, you have a natural set point when you see triglycerides go up, it's perhaps excess carbohydrates. So that will Mm -hmm. definitely make an impact. And if you are a hyper responder, I was just talking to, um, we have a cardiologist in my practice, Dr. Michael Twyman, who everyone should follow. You should bring him on. He's amazing. Okay. And when you have, uh, excess LDL, is it possible that it's uh, familial? And then those individuals should not really be on a very high fat diet. Mm. You know, there's a lot of controversy about LDL and particles, but when you speak to a cardiologist who is in practice, you have to risk stratify. He says, you know, if you look at their lipid profile and you know that they're a hyper responder and they have a, a calcium score, you know, that is elevated, this is someone who should be very careful about their LDL. So it does yeah. matter. Despite the narrative that we're hearing, it doesn't, it does. And these are guys in practice for a very long time. Yeah. This is why there's no one size fits all diet plan. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I, and I, I caution people because for the average person with no cardiovascular history and no issues with their LDL, they could probably eat excess cal. I mean, could they eat excess calories? No, but they could certainly eat a high fat diet and be okay. But if you are an individual who happens to be a hyper responder, you probably shouldn't. Right. Right. So interesting. Okay. So if I want to eat a steak every night, I'm going to be no okay. Problem. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And There's now, no problem. There's never been evidence to suggest that eating red meat is a problem and that's the evidence mind, doesn't support it. Mind blowing for some of the people listening to this. I, well, let, let sure. me point them to the IR committee. And this is a committee that, that determined a long time ago that beef was a carcinogen. Red meat was a carcinogen, Mm -hmm. the IR committee. And then what they didn't disclose was when they made these claims and they made these recommendations is that 
they looked at the data sets and they threw out all the high quality randomized control trials. They said, oh, these trials are too small. I'm going to throw them out. But anyone in research knows that randomized control trials, that's the pinnacle of evidence. Yeah. The IR committee who actually, what they also didn't tell you is largely vegetarian, went in there with a bias, threw out all the high quality evidence, took epidemiology data, which is data that's just uh, collected, observational data, and took that and analyzed that. Yeah. So one of the committee members actually started to speak out about it. His his name is David Klerfeld. And they should, your listeners, you should, I will send you the study or I'll send you some of the commentary about it. When you read it, you realize that, you know, it was a narrative. The evidence doesn't ever support, the data doesn't ever support red meat and cancer. The next thing someone needs to answer is what is the mechanism of action? What mechanism of action and what kind of cancer? These are all things that we have to ask. Yeah. So, you know, not to get political here, but when our president comes out and we have a worldwide audience and says, everybody needs to go plant-based and we're in the middle of a pandemic. What is that doing to our immune systems right now? It's the worst piece of advice I could ever give someone. That is frankly the truth. It is the worst piece of advice I could ever give someone. Yeah, I would agree. How, I mean, number one, you know, high quality nutrients that are bioavailable come from meat, you know, and it's not even, I don't care if an individual is vegetarian or you know, carnivore. I don't care. I'm a clinician. I've spent 17 years in education. Right. I don't care. Whatever a patient wants to do, my job is to help support them. Right. The idea that you would make a recommendation and say that individuals should go plant-based, I've been at the other end of that. Yeah. This will destroy people's health. It will destroy people's health. It will make them weak. You cannot support skeletal muscle in the same way. What about B vitamins, iron, selenium, zinc? I mean, yeah. bioavailable nutrients. What about the other things like carnitine and creatine? Yeah. I don't know. And then and not even, yeah, go ahead. Not even to mention the blood sugar of what, when people oh my go God, I was just going to say, yeah. I was just going to say, you want Alzheimer's? That's the best way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, you screw yourself up metabolically. Don't control your blood sugar. Um, yeah. You know, and if you're going to be plant-based, the chances are, the. I mean, the people in your group are going to be likely very wise and they're not going to be overweight. They're into fasting. They're probably plant-based for reasons that may be more emotional or whatever it is. But the majority, if you're going to try to reach those thresholds of amino acids, the amount of calories you're going to consume is going to be astronomical. When, you know, carbohydrates are at a threshold, people have to understand that the way in which you eat carbohydrates are a meal threshold. Yeah. When you are talking about insulin, it's very fascinating to me that we talk about carbohydrates as how many grams per day, it's a, not a gram per day deal. It is a meal per meal tolerance. Yeah. 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 I agree. So, okay. And I I could chat with you about protein all day long. So, but I have one other major question, which is, are all, is all animal protein equal? Um, I'll tell you what, what uh, here we're on a Friday tomorrow night. I actually am going to be grilling chicken hearts. We bought at the uh, farmer's market. I'm trying to experiment a little bit more with some of the organ meats. So if do I, when I eat chicken, do I get a different nutrient amino acid profile than beef? And what happens when I eat heart or I have liver pate? How does that all play it. out? Well, I'll be over at your house for dinner and I'm <laughs> with your family. Do you have a recipe for me? I am hands down the worst cook ever. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'll, like, I'll let you know when I find like, one. My- here's the air fryer and some liver. Go for oh, it. Okay. We're going to do um, it on the big green egg. So we got a whole plan around it. You guys are, you know, very high tech. I am not like that. <laughs> The, the question is, are number one proteins across species the same? And I would say if they are gravity bearing, if they have four legs and they walk, or if they are chicken and they're gravity bearing, then they have seven grams of protein per one ounce. You can arguably say that and be confident that, you know, whether it's, um, six or seven grams of protein is roughly that fish because it swims, not gravity bearing is a little bit lower. And that has about five grams of protein per one ounce. Okay. Now we move to organ meats. Organ meats are actually different as it relates to their amino acid profile. And it makes sense because it's not skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is what's very high in the essential amino acids. 
as it relates to liver, I don't actually know how much leucine is in four ounces of liver, but I can tell you that it's going to be different than skeletal muscle. Interesting. So the reason to, would it be more or less? Do you think it would be less? It would It'd be, be less. less. Okay. So, but the, now you said this earlier that like will feed like, yeah. so yeah. M- my thought when I'm looking at all the different organs I could have bought from this rancher was, okay, well, let me get some heart. I don't, I haven't, I don't know if I've been feeding my heart the right, you know, nutrient profile. We got liver. So we're going to try to make some liver pate. We've got bone marrow. We did that last week. So each one of these, I can just pretty much go heart's going to treat heart. Liver is going to treat yeah. liver. Bone marrow will support healthy bones. Um, is that totally true? I think, I think that a lot of that is true. I don't know, you know, bones are made from protein primarily. I don't know if the fat and bone marrow is going to support that. I, you know, I certainly can't say that for sure, but there's CoQ10 in heart. We definitely know that that supports cardiac function. Liver, liver does wonders things for nearly every part of the body. I mean, every Mm -hmm. part of the body is being a little dramatic, but fat soluble vitamins, I mean, you can't go wrong with liver in general. Right. Yeah. It's just getting it, stomaching it. (laughs) I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, so that's what we tried to feed our son as his first food. What? So, yeah, I know. How did he yeah. do? What did he do? I'm like, please do not projectile vomit. Because Aries, our daughter, was great with it. Leo just cannot be bothered. But oh my God, I love their names. Yeah. So we have Aries Hunter and Leonidas. Leonidas Michael. Oh my gosh. I did they were they named for their astrological sign? Mm-mm. No. Wow. No. I love names. My, my daughter's, uh, my firstborn, her name is Bodhi, which is okay. the tree the Buddha meditated under and oh, became enlightened. Okay. Yeah. And our, my son's name is Paxton, which Pax, we call him Pax means, you know, peace. So we, okay. we were really intentional with names as well. So yeah. I love that. I was telling well, you earlier that my husband was in the Navy for a decade and really that's kind of where the names a little, where the names came from. He's very much a Spartan kind of guy. Mm. I love it. Oh, great names. Like, and they're st- good, strong names. Yeah. Love that. So, okay. Well, this was fascinating. I could chat with you and I definitely want to bring you back on. Um, I'm very curious just in what we've talked about, what kind of questions my audience has. So you guys, you know, put it, leave us a review with your yep. questions, email us so that um, I'm happy can go to come back on it. to talk to your Facebook group. If that's what you do, if you do yeah, lives, I'm happy we to would definitely do questions. That. Yeah. It's really important you know, because it's so controversial that this information gets lost. And unfortunately, there's a lot more opinion in this kind of science than there is in other kinds of science. Yeah. With that being said, I I just want to tell people that as we age, these concepts become non-negotiable. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to understand from just a fundamental level. And I'm happy to be a resource. I'm happy to you know, come together, answer any questions. Cause it's that important to understand. Yeah. So, okay. My, I have five rapid fire questions. Okay. Some of them don't have to do with protein. So let's start off with this one. We're putting together a book list. We love books uh, of all of our guests. Uh, we want to put the, your favorite reads. So Great. what book do you feel like everybody should read? And it can be fiction or nonfiction. So relentless is one by Tim Grover. Okay. Beautiful. Relentless. You really have to understand how you operate and where you want to be operating. Okay. Number one, number two, the upside of stress, which is Kelly McGonigal understanding that stress is not just fight or flight, that actually it's a very good mechanism. It's a tendon, a friend, it can, it can generate the courage response. Okay. And the last book I would say, Hmm, let me think about that. Um, well, what I'm really liking and I, and this is a little cerebral and kind of poetic, so it's, it's not such an easy read, but it's uh, David White. And it is, um, I think it's called The Pilgrimage of Work. Mm. Oh, I love the name of it. It's, um, and you know, and I'm, here it is right here. So I will tell you this, I read all the time. That is yeah. probably, oh, Crossing the Unknown Sea. Work as a pilgrim, pilgrimage of identity. Ooh. And this really talks about having the courage. And he's so amazing, but it, it really talks about you know, 
that sometimes it takes courage to ultimately be your authentic self and how that becomes expressed in the world and really what that takes. Because ultimately, I would say, Mindy, and you may agree that initially you may be at war with yourself. Oh, yeah. There will, yeah. right? There will always be a lot of times, that, right? And Not even initially, <laughs> daily. <laughs> and, and, you know, whatever modality an individual uses to ultimately be the highest expression of their self is it's important for humanity. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. Second question. Okay. What's your favorite protein? What do you like to, what's your go-to protein? Beef. Beef. Mm-hmm. Okay. Beautiful. Okay. What's the weirdest protein you've ever eaten? Oh gosh. This is with Ashley Von Houten. Do you know her? She's incredible too. Very dear friend. So it was like pancreas. It was just gross sweet bread. <laughs> she conned me into it. Yeah. I won't be eating that. That yeah. sounds bad. Okay. What if you could go back to your 20 year old self and yeah. you could give her advice? What would you give her? You got it. Keep going. Everything just keep going. I love it. I love so. it. Yeah. Okay. And then my last question, I think I'll know your answer, but it's always interesting to hear if you had one message for the world that you could get in everybody's brain, what would it be? Do I only have one? It's going to be increase your dietary protein per meal amount. Awesome. You have to be at least 30 grams, at least 30 grams protein forward. I mean, it depends on your age, but come on, at least 30 grams. You can nail that per meal. You can understand that high quality protein is essential for the way in which you age. Hey, Resetters, I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for all your wonderful reviews and those of you that have left me comments on iTunes. I just greatly appreciate your thoughtfulness and how much you guys are enjoying these episodes. And it it seems like you're enjoying them as much as I am enjoying doing them. One of the things that I've learned in just interacting with so many people is that we've really lost the art of deep conversation. And for me, the Resetter Podcast stands for having meaningful conversations with people who are thinking about health, about life, about mindset in a way that we may not be getting on social media or in mainstream media. And so I just want to say, give you guys a shout out and just say thank you for participating in this process with me. Because as much as I absolutely love delivering the information to you, I love even more knowing knowing that it's impacting your life. So please let us know if there's anything we can do to make this podcast more customized to you, to make it better. We are now officially in season two, and we are working to bring you the best conversations that health influencers have, that mindset changers can give, and to really deliver you something that you're not able to get anywhere else. So from the bottom of my heart, as I always say in my YouTube, from the bottom of my heart, I am deeply appreciative of you. I am deeply grateful to be on this journey with you and let's get healthy together.